You were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. No drinks of my coffee, not a single one, completely full cup. I was like, well, I'll just settle on the ground, and this is why we can't have nice things because I dumped a whole cup of hot coffee right on my wife's left foot. It splashed some, I think, onto our right foot, but primarily filled up those boaters, like coffee overboard or something, on board, I don't know. But it was a mistake. And uh, we want everything to be perfect. You know what I mean? We want life to be simple, not complicated. We want everything to work smoothly always. And it seems the more that we want that and the more important it is that it does, the less likely it is that it will. And I just want to remind everybody that um, it's always been true. God has never blessed anyone except for exactly where they are. And God will never bless us except for exactly where we are. He meets us in the exact moment that we find ourselves in, in the exact place that we find ourselves in. And I'm really happy to be here with you all today. Sarah and I were talking like we own a building, like our church owns a building now. I mean, in like, you know, 20 or 30 years, we'll own it. For now, we're just making payments. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, give generously. Um, We're like, we're just, you know, we're, we, you know, we're, we're, paying the mortgage on it. But for us, it's been since 2014, since February of 2014, that we had a church home that had its own home. So it's, it's been a long and wonderful journey. And we've met in the basements of people's homes. We've met in various spaces on the campus of SIUE. We've met in the old Comfort Inn at the south end of 157 there, not before it was renovated, like, or sorry, before it was renovated, not after it was renovated. Uh, We met in a field once, we met in a backyard. uh, When we were first talking about where to host our worship gatherings, one of uh, our good friends, Kevin Wright, who was an overseer for us at the time, he said, you can have your worship gatherings in a trash can. If you preach the gospel and you love each other, then people are gonna come. People are gonna gather. The right people are gonna gather. And I'm thankful that all of you have gathered here today. You're the right people. You're the right people. You're who I wanna have here. You're who I wanna do this with. So I'm really thankful for you and thankful for everyone who sacrificed time with family and friends and uh, time away from work. Everyone who generously gave of their time, of their talent and of their resources to be able to make this happen. And uh, I hope that you're the kind of person who can walk in and see all the great things and not the kind of person who walks in and sees all the broken things. Uh, I used to tell my kids when they were younger, we have more than enough to be glad about, more than enough to be sad about, and more than enough to be mad about. And only you get to decide how you're gonna spend your energy. And I, I hope for all of us, I hope that we're a people who get to come into a place like this and go like, look at what God has done through our efforts. And I hope that in five years and 10 years and 20 years and in 50 years, the people of Red Hill Church are saying, look at what God has done and what God is doing through our efforts because that's how he works. He doesn't work in mysticism or magic. He works through his people and that's what we are. 
So we're in the book of Ephesians. There's no book of the Bible that talks more about what the church is and what the church is supposed to be. And in this passage, we get to see the first use of the word church. And by the, word, uh, by the way, the word church in Greek is ekklesia, and it's a compound word. And what it means is those who've been called out and gathered together. Called out and gathered together, that's what we are. The called out and gathered together ones, that's what we call this worship time, a worship gathering. Because we've been called out and gathered together. So we're gonna start right in. As a reminder, Paul has given this great like blessing, this word of blessing, a benediction over the people of Ephesus and anybody else who would read the letter and has told them about the riches that they have in Jesus. That basically God has given everything to Jesus and then God put us in Jesus. And in Jesus, we have everything we could ever need. And that doesn't mean we have access to an endless supply of financial resources. Because one of the things that Paul really wants for us and one of the things that God really wants for us and one of the things that we should really want for ourselves is that we would be less attached to this life and this world and more attached to the life that only God can give and the world that God has created for us. We weren't made for this place. This, this is not home. This is just the next stop on the journey. So he says in verse 15, this is why since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stopped giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. This is why. Here's why, because this benediction says that God is blessed and he's glorious, and he's generous, and he wants to be known as a goer and a giver. He wants to be known as generous and gracious and merciful and going and giving, one who loves sinners out of all religions in all history. Christianity is the only one, it's the only one where instead of requiring great sacrifice of us, our God makes great sacrifice for us. He doesn't say, you must die to, to, to have me. He doesn't say, you must kill your firstborn to have me. He doesn't say, you have to give incredible treasures to have me. He doesn't say, you must first cut yourself and bleed to have me. Instead, he says, I will die for you. I will give my firstborn for you. I will have a broken body and I will have spilled blood. And because of all of that, we've been placed in Christ because God is so good. This is why, Paul says, this is why I'm always giving thanks for you because we're in it together. We're in this thing together. We're in Christ together. Let me tell you something. There's not a building that has ever been made that can solve the pain and the problems of humanity. There's not a building that has ever been constructed in the history of humanity that can wash away sin or that can communicate the fullness of the greatness and the glory of who God is and who Jesus is. His plan for that is not a place, it's a people. This is why, Paul says, this is why I'm always giving thanks for you. This is why, because I'm not in it alone. Paul's writing from a prison. He's writing from a prison and he's giving thanks. He said in the book of Acts, as he's journeying towards the Roman prison, he says, the Holy Spirit tells me Everywhere I go, the only thing waiting for me is chains and punishment. Everywhere I go, every step forward is a step closer, he says, to my own confinement, to torture, 
to prison, to isolation, and then to martyrdom. And yet Paul keeps marching forward and he says, this is why, this is why when I think about you, I give thanks. You know why? Because we need each other. We need each other. You need the people who are in this place and they need you. They need you, not somebody else. Here's what the devil does to me. Maybe he does the same thing to you. When he really wants to get on me, when he really is like, when he catches me in a moment where I'm down and discouraged, he starts saying things like, you know, they'd be better off with a different pastor. The church would be better if they had a different pastor. Your kids would be better if they had a different dad. Your wife would be better if she had a different husband. This is how the enemy speaks to me, condemning me, immobilizing me, and making me feel as though I am insignificant to my children, to my wife, and to my church. And not even just insignificant, but actually a drain and a drag on them. Paul doesn't have some pie in the sky. The Ephesian church is perfect and has never done anything wrong and you're the greatest Christians who've ever lived and you don't sin and that's why I'm thankful for you. That's not how he thinks about them. He was with them for years and he knows that they are living immersed in a culture that is contrary to them, that is hostile to them. And he says from a prison cell, this is why. Because our God is blessed and he has supplied our needs in Christ. And our needs, the supply of our needs is kept in a safe place that is not assailable or accessible to our enemies, but is always available to us. He can richly supply all of our needs. You just look around the room, all of our needs in the manifold wisdom of God. He said he chose us before the foundations of the world were laid. To understand that before the foundations of the world were laid, this was God's plan for you. That you were God's plan for me and I was God's plan for you. That there's no one he'd rather have sitting in your chair this morning than you. You were his plan We were his plan. Paul says, this is why, because of who God is, what God has done for us in Christ, how he has protected our needs from those who would rob them and how he has made them completely available and connected to us for any moment that we want to have them. He's saying, I'm giving thanks because by God's gracious and generous design, we are in this together. It's, it's like the founding fathers, I don't know, maybe Ben Franklin or one of them who said, gentlemen, if, if we don't hang together, we shall surely all hang separately. Guys, if, if we don't hang together, if we don't hang together, we are exposing individuals to open attack, discouragement, depression, despair, and distance. Distance, where the enemy has foothold an opportunity. It means that we have to love each other. We have to pay attention to each other. We have to care about people that we're not really all that deeply acquainted with. Why? Because we are blood with them in Jesus. And it's hard to live in a world that is hostile to the gospel. It's hard and it's isolating. 
And we must, we must labor. We must fight to say, we're never gonna stop giving thanks for each other. Imperfect as we are. Those of us who've been in the building a lot over the last, uh, I don't know, 28 or so days have developed a little bit of a saying as we begin to work on things around here. Um, like I did baseboards in some of the places. I'm not telling you which places because I don't want you to go and evaluate my work. But I, the places where it doesn't look as good, that's me. I'm the guy who spilled coffee. So I've baptized the floor and my wife's foot. That's two baptisms already. We're counting them. Yeah. Uh, we developed this little saying as we would try to do something uh, because the enemy would condemn me. I finish something, I go, well, that looks like an amateur did it. And then the spirit would say to me, an amateur did do it. This is not what I called you to for a profession, for a vocation. So we just started saying about everything in here, it's imperfect, just like us. That's the design here. It's imperfect, just like us. We can all find the flaws. Paul said, I wanna find the good things because of who God is, because of what God's done. I'm always thanking God for you. I'm all, he's in a prison cell headed to his own martyrdom death. And he says, I just don't ever stop praying. Every time I'm praying, I'm just thanking God that I'm not in it alone. Because even though I'm in this place, and he'd say later, even though I'm in chains, the gospel is unchained. I'm bound, it's unbound. I'm limited and it's limitless because we're in it together. I don't ever stop giving thanks. Gratitude's a choice, guys. Gratitude is a choice. It's a choice. You can make that choice. Being thankful for others, it's an act of hope. It requires a posture of humility and it demonstrates life-giving courage. It's an act of hope because I'm thankful for you and I'm hopeful that like, we have a good future together. And that what I see of you is not all that there is to you. And that what you see of me is not all that there is to me. It requires a posture of humility because it requires you to say, I don't need to find their flaws. I need to find my flaws. I want to take them where they are and say, I'm thankful for what they're giving. Can you give 1% of yourself to the mission? Well, that'd be 1% more than what we had if you were at zero. And I can be thankful for the contribution that we all make. It's pretty amazing that God seems to really enjoy generous givers. Generous, of course, not being about the quantity of what is given, but about the quantity of what is kept. And it demonstrates a life-giving courage. When we're thankful for others, it's life-giving. When someone can look you in the eyes and say, I am I'm so thankful for you, and here's a specific thing about you that I just love. We're like, oh man, uh, I hope that's true of me. Or we say something like, you can probably have me confused with somebody else or something along those lines. You know why? Because most of us aren't used to someone saying kind things to us. We're not used to people saying life-giving things to us. We're used to people tearing us down. When we planted uh, Red Hill in 2015, we were, uh, and still are part of the SEND network and we, we built into the Brotherhood of the SEND network here in St. Louis 
this thing that we call the culture of honor. There's a thing among preachers. I don't know if it's true of other professions because I'm not in other professions, but there's a thing about preachers that when you go to preach at somebody else's church, one of the things that you say is you're like, well, I'm really sorry you guys have to put up with old Raiden. <laughs> you know, good thing he's got Sarah with him because that's, I'm telling you, that's just, you know, the Lord's just gonna have to keep working on him. He's just not a great guy and he's a terrible preacher, but gosh, we love him. You know, like we just tear each other down in a joking kind of a way is the normal behavior. And we said, we're not gonna do that anymore. When we get around each other, we're gonna say the things that are really true. We're gonna see each other the way that God sees us in Christ. It's an honor to stand in your presence. It's an honor to be here with you today. It's an honor to see you, a courageous follower of Jesus, stepping into your fears and facing them the best that you can. And I'm proud of you. We have enough people in the world who will tell us all of the sarcastic, bad things about us. Paul says, I don't ever stop giving thanks for you. That's the apostle Paul, guys. Hi, Phoebe, you wanna give me a hug? I'm thankful for you, Phoebe. That's the, that's the apostle Paul, right? I mean, it's one thing, some belly pats, it's good. She's thankful for my belly. There's a lot to give right there. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is like, I'm really thankful for you. And if he says that to me, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like, it's like <laughs> the guy who had one rebound in the game with Wilt Chamberlain when he had 50 rebounds. He's like me and Wilt pulled down 51 rebounds and scored 103 points, you know, like, okay, I gave a little bit, I guess. If Paul can be thankful for people who have just begun following Jesus, you and I can be thankful for each other. I don't do CrossFit, which you probably don't have to say because if you do CrossFit, everybody already knows that you do CrossFit. And you know why people are so rabid about CrossFit? It's because you can go in there and be bad at everything. And if you just try, everyone celebrates you. You just try. You don't even have to succeed. You just try. And one guy might be in there doing pull-ups with a 40-pound vest on, and somebody else might have a stack of mats and just be jumping up above the bar. And you know what happens? They celebrate everybody who's trying. That's what I want to be true of us, to be thankful for each other. To say, gosh, every, every time I try to sit down and pray, every time I, I kneel down and pray, every time I bow my head, I'm just thinking about these people who've locked arms with me for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our community. The most powerfully content people on earth, people who are satisfied on the inside are those who are generous and grateful. They're generous and grateful. Generous people need nothing and grateful people are thankful for everything. You can't take anything from a generous person because they're willing to give it and you can't hurt a grateful person because when you hurt them, they'll thank you for it. That's the secret to the power generosity and gratitude. What did Paul pray? Like, I, I'm praying, what did he pray? Verses 17 and 18 and 19 tell us. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. 
that the glorious Father would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him, that God would give you wisdom, that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would reveal spiritual truth to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, I'm just gonna summarize it, but you can look it up, but here's what Paul says. Spiritual things can't be understood in a natural way. This is why really, really smart people and really, really rich people and really, really powerful people have a hard time with the gospel because they want to figure it out, they want to earn it and control it, or they wanna be able to buy their way into it. And Paul says, it cannot be understood by natural processes and means. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. The Holy Spirit turns the light on for us. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't turn the light on, it doesn't matter how good of a communicator stands up here and tells you, you'll never really believe it in the core of who you are. That's what's required, is that it sinks into the depths of who we are. And the only means by which that can happen, the heart in the, in the Bible, the heart is not the beating organ. It's the center of all that we are. Our emotions are born there. Our will resides there. The core of our values and beliefs are cemented in place there. It is who we really are and everything originates from there and Paul says the only way that the truth of God and the truth of the gospel and the truths of the Bible the only thing that the really real and true things can find their way into that place inside of us is if the Holy Spirit turns the lights on Jesus would say of the Pharisees seeing they cannot see and hearing they cannot hear it's not possible for us to get there on our own. This is incredibly good news because it means it doesn't matter if you're poor, if you're weak, or if you're stupid. God can turn the light on. It doesn't matter if you are resolved to be against him. God can turn the light on. It doesn't matter if you are firm in disbelief. God can turn the light on by the power of his spirit. Paul is saying, I want the Holy Spirit to be alive and at work inside of you. Hi, Phoebe. I want him to be alive and at work inside of you. I want him to turn the truth of the gospel on. I want him to make it known to you. I want him to make it come alive inside of you so that you would know what's really real, what's really true, what's really going to happen in the future and your life therefore would be transformed. So your eyes, the eyes of your heart are opened and the light comes on so that you can know three things. He says, three things I really want you to know. The first one is the hope of his calling. I, I, read, um, I read in a commentary this week, there's a theologian whose last name was Mool, M-O-U-L-E, and he said, hope is faith on its tiptoes. And I was thinking about, well, how does that work in real life? Like, how does faith on, its, like, faith on its tiptoes, how does that work in real life? Here's how it works in my real life. Sarah's like, there's something on the top shelf. Can you get it for me? And I say, I think so, that's faith. And you know what hope is? Hope is me reaching for it and going like, Aah! 
I'm actually trying. That's what hope is. Hope is not stationary. Hope doesn't sit back. Hope doesn't stay still. Hope doesn't live in some fantasy world. Hope is us saying, I really believe these things are true and I'm straining towards them as if they actually are, as if everything that's promised is real. As if it's really true. It's us going back into the wardrobe, pushing through the fur coats for the second time, hoping that Narnia is still there. It's us, after having believed the gospel, then saying, I still need to believe the gospel. I still have to push forward in faith. Faith says, I believe it. Hope says, I'm gonna actually live like I believe it. What is his calling? His calling is him calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light, taking people who were not a people and making them a people, taking people who were enemies and making them family, taking people who were oppositional to the gospel and making them the very missionaries who would go and proclaim that gospel. Hope says it's all real, it's all true. This life isn't all that there is. This life isn't even the point. This life isn't what I was made for. It's not what I'm promised. It's not what I'm guaranteed. It's the next one that counts so I can live this one full throttle with faith that actually moves God says, I want that to come alive in you. That's available for you. And Paul says, I want the Holy Spirit to turn it on. I want the Holy Spirit to light it up inside of you so that suddenly you go, I actually get it. And it's gonna change my life. The hope of his calling is when I'm out playing with my friends. And my parents have told me, when it's time for dinner, we'll call you back. And so we go out and we play, and we have fun, and everything is great, and then my dad steps outside, and of course, back then, you could wander away to your friends' homes, and if your dad had a man whistle, or your mom had a great man whistle, I don't mean that gender-specific, I just mean like, I call it a man whistle because my dad did it, and it's this really powerful whistle. The only ones that I've heard that are louder than mine is my dad's and Drew's. We had a whistle off once at his house, I still, I, the results are contested. We didn't have any kind of metering. It was like a crowd vote and I'm not bitter about it, but I am a little. But my dad would come out and he would whistle. And that meant it was time to come home. And the hope was that you would get home, you would be welcomed home, there would be food for you at home and that it would be good food. And, and when he would whistle, you knew it was time to come and you would go home. You left knowing I'm not going to play basketball forever. I'm not going to play wiffle ball forever. I'm going home. Paul says, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would make that truth come alive inside of you. You're at a friend's house right now or an enemy's house right now. And Revelation says, the trumpet's gonna sound. It's like the ultimate whistle. And he's going to call you home. You're going home. I'm going home. Some of my friends and my family have already gone home. I like going to, uh, to, to, to black funerals because they call them home goings. They're going home. Someday that trumpet will blow for me and for you. And dad will call us home. Paul says, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would make you actually believe it. And not just a thing that you talk about or sing about. 
but a thing that makes you say, I'm gonna orient my whole life around the love and the mission of God because of the hope of his calling. He called me out, he called you out, he called us out, and that's supposed to change the way that we live our lives. The hope of his calling means we live as if it's all true. As if it's all true. And you can't muster that up on your own. And if you feel that flagging, if you feel that falling behind in your own soul, in your own spirit, you turn to God and you say, would you make it come back alive inside of me? Only you can do it. He says, secondly, I want you to know I want you to know, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I'm praying that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that the glorious Father would make known to you what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the wealth of his glorious inheritance, God's glorious inheritance. What is it? You and me. His glorious inheritance in the saints. I was trying to think of like just the right way to say it, and I only came up with one thing. I was standing at the front of a church. Well, at the front of a building, you know what I mean. And I was, uh, I looked ridiculous because I'm so small, and when I put a tuxedo on, it just makes people laugh. But I was wearing a tuxedo. First time I got pulled over, I was wearing a tuxedo, by the way. Sophomore year of high school, prom night. I got out, I weighed 101 pounds and I was wearing a tuxedo and I'm not kidding, the police officer who pulled me over bent over and took a knee laughing. <laughs> but I'm standing at the front of a church building wearing a tuxedo. Got a pastor right here. He's, he's like right on my six, right behind me. And I'm looking at the back doors, just waiting for them to open and the doors open, and there comes my bride and her dad. Everybody stands in honor of her. Everybody in the room stands in honor of her. Everybody's eyes go to her, but she's coming to me. And the way that I felt and the way that I feel about my wife, about my bride on that day, pales in comparison to how God thinks about you. You are not worthless. We are not worthless. He says, I want you to know. I want the Holy Spirit to make it come alive in you and that you would believe it, that you are his treasure. Someday the doors are gonna open and when the doors open, God is not gonna be like, ah, I wish they'd been better. I wish they'd looked different. No, he's gonna be locked on you. My wife, she talks about this moment in weddings. It's her favorite moment in weddings. And she says, everybody looks at the bride, but she likes to watch the groom. Because you've never seen someone more enthralled more enraptured and more in a moment than the groom who sees his bride. And Paul says, believe it. That's how God thinks about you. That's how God thinks about us. Believe it. 
You're not a loser. You're not a nothing. You're not a no one. You don't have to be bigger. You don't have to be smarter. You don't have to be richer. You don't have to be better. He is enthralled with us. We are part of his inheritance. I don't really know what's happening. The alarms are going off. To tell you the truth. That might be the trumpet call. Listen, people get ready. If you ain't ready, you better get ready. Because you get ready, you don't have to stay ready. You know what I'm saying? You stay ready, you don't have to get ready. I did that backwards. It's all right. All eyes on the bride. You don't have to have the kind of building that doesn't have smoke alarms going off during the worship gathering. It's not required, right? We're still figuring it out. Next week, maybe I'll pour coffee on you. <laughs> We're his inheritance. We're his glorious inheritance. By the way, wasn't it great hearing the kids laugh and play back there? I, I, was, talk, I was talking to our kids uh, workers back there and, uh, and Trisha was like, uh, you're probably gonna hear us. And I said, I hope I hear it. I hope I hear. I hope I hear kids laughing and playing back there. I hope I hear kids having a great time learning about Jesus. Like, I, I hope it's fun. I hope we hear them. We're supposed to hear them. This is not a sanitized office space where we sit and reflect on things. This place is alive. It's filled with real people. He also says, I, I, I also want you to know not just the hope of his calling, not just the glorious inheritance that he has in you, but I also want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. This verse, this little phrase actually, has four different words for power, four different Greek words for power. And I was gonna give you all four Greek words and I was like, nobody cares. Nobody's gonna remember them and I don't wanna waste my time on it. There are four different words for power. One of them is only used in this particular phrase hyperbalon and basically it means it's like if you were in one realm of existence and you took a thing and tied a tether to it and threw it into another realm of existence the power stretches further than you can imagine it goes everywhere the immeasurable greatness of his power and it's not isolated, it's not stagnant, it's not kept away. His power is directed and is directed to us who believe. All the power of God being directed towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty strength. According to the working of his mighty strength. So what is this power? How does this power work? I'm so glad you asked because he tells us in the next set of verses, what this specific power is and what it looks like. Because I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know. There's nothing wrong with being ignorant, by the way. It's, it shouldn't be a criticism that we use of other people. We should allow each other to be ignorant about things because we have each other to help learn about things. I learned all kinds of stuff this week from people who knew how to do things. I learned also there's all kinds of stuff I don't wanna know how to do and that's okay too because we don't have to be everything. So what kind of power is it? He says, he exercised this power. He shows this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. 
The actual phrasing right there, and by the way, most of the time in the New Testament, when you read that God raised him from the dead, the actual translation says, raised him from among the dead ones. And the implication is that he's the first of many who will rise from death. It's tied into the original language. He's the first of many rising from death. He exercised this power. How did he exercise this power? By raising someone from among the dead ones. If you can do that, it's pretty good power. If you can stand over a dead body and of your own origination, not calling on someone else and not tapping into someone else, force someone who is dead to come back to life, it's pretty good power. So we call it resurrection power. It's resurrection power. It's not just resurrection power, it's also shared power. He says, raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens. Seating him at the right hand in the heavens is absolute and total power. Paul's not saying there's God on the big throne and then on a smaller throne next to him is Jesus. And it's like Jesus is like his general who runs out and does stuff for him. No, what he's saying is all the power that God possesses has been placed into Jesus and given to Jesus and all along belonged to Jesus. He humbled himself by coming here and he's restored to who he was when he comes back to heaven. Everything that God has power-wise is given to Jesus. Absolute and total power. Paul recognizes that there are all kinds of evil in the world. He says in verse 21, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul wants you to know, think of any kind of evil. Jesus is over it. Think of any kind of demon, Jesus is over it. Think of the devil himself, Jesus is over it. Think of hell, think of all kinds of weird structures, every demonic religion, everything that's false, everything that's evil and wicked. Think of the grossest horror movies you've ever seen, the most terrifying presence of evil you could ever conceive of. And Paul says, Jesus is over it. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. David's writing and he says, the Lord said to my Lord. So God said to my Lord, he's the king, who's his Lord? He's talking about Jesus. Sit at my feet until, my, uh, until I make your enemies a footstool. You guys ever heard of the Washington generals? Anybody ever heard of the Washington generals? Raise your hand if you know who the Washington generals are. Raise your hand if you can name one player who ever played for the Washington generals. None of you. The Washington generals over the past 60 years have lost more than 16,000 basketball games to a team called the Harlem Globetrotters. They go out, they play, 70% of it is show, 30% of it is scoring baskets. The story's written, the victory's sure. The only thing that's left is to play the game. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, yeah, there's all kinds of principalities. There's all kinds of powers. And some of us are weirdos about this stuff. Some of you guys are nuts about this. And you're like, I'm gonna study every kind of demonology book I can get my hands on. That's weird. You know why it's weird? 
It's like knowing a whole lot about the Washington generals. You're studying an enemy that has no power, that has been defeated, and that will be someday put all the way down to a footrest, ground into oblivion, and absolutely eradicated from existence for eternity. And you're like, yeah, but I wanna know a whole lot about the Washington generals. They're not the show and they're not the story. Paul is saying, it exists, it's there, you have to face it, but you should know in light of who Jesus is and the power that he possesses, it is absolutely irrelevant compared with who he is and the power that he possesses. Not only that, but it's a lasting power. He says not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Think of a dimension, think of a distance, think of a duration of time, and you should know that God's power will not diminish, it will not dwindle, it will not deteriorate, and it cannot degrade. It's better than the Energizer Bunny. It lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts forever and ever and ever and you can take all the forevers and he will still be the one with absolute total power. He subjected everything under his feet. It's Jesus's power. And he appointed him as head over everything for the church. It's beneficial power. Jesus has total power, absolute power, resurrection power, and all of that is beneficial because it's all been endowed to him for the church. For the church, for you, for me, for us together. It's for us. Being a church is difficult. It's hard to be a church. It's hard, and you know what ends up happening? We hurt each other real bad. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. Sometimes we pour hot coffee on each other accidentally. Sometimes we pour hot coffee on each other on purpose. Sometimes we say things that are careless without thinking about it. And sometimes we say things that are careless and hurtful after we've thought about it. Sometimes the pastors of churches are manipulative, self-serving, and cruel. Sometimes the members of a church are manipulative, self-serving, and cruel. Sometimes people will show up to a church that they are not even part of just to be manipulative, self-serving, and cruel. What are we supposed to do about that? We're supposed to remember that all the power, all the blessing, and all the resources are found in Jesus. And that power was given to him for our benefit, for the church. We're supposed to be like an embassy in a foreign country. That embassy has some power. You know, there's personnel that's there to serve and protect that embassy, but not enough to fight a whole country. Where's the power? The power is based somewhere else. That embassy is sent out as a representative of the power, the values, and the culture of another place. This is supposed to be an embassy of heaven, an outpost of heaven, the culture of heaven, the presence and peace of the spirit. And when it's not here, it's not my job to fix it, it's our job to fix it. When we hear cruel and sarcastic statements, it's our job to say lovingly, we don't do that here. 
You don't have to do that. You, we already like you and we think you're funny or at least funny looking. See, I just did it. And so you should tell me, we don't do that here. Right? We don't have to do that. We already like you. You don't need to do that to be liked. We already like you. We have to say together, it's not the job of the elders or the staff to create a culture that represents heaven to our community. It's our job. All of us, we are part of it. We create it. Well, how can we do something like that? Because we got mirrors, you know what I'm saying? We know who we really are. And not only that, some of y'all have hurt me. And I've hurt probably most of you all. When I used to lead the membership classes, I would say, when I offend you, not if I offend you, when I offend you, come and tell me and I'll apologize for it. Please come and tell me. So how are we supposed to do that? We remember that all the power rests in Jesus, who, by the way, forgave me for quite a lot. And when I remember that I am first forgiven, then I can become a great forgiver of others. We can be courageous. We can be bold. We can take risks. We can love lavishly. We can believe relentlessly. We can hope confidently. We can forgive endlessly. And there's nothing special about us that makes us able to do that. All of that was put into Jesus for our benefit. And if you have Jesus, you have access to all of that. And there's no tricks. There's no manipulation. There's no great sacrifice you have to make. The sacrifice has been made for you. And he says, to close it out, he appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The church is his body. Jesus is the one. He represents God. He fills all things. The only way that we can find out who we are as a church, as a family, as a person, the only way that we can find ourselves on the map is if we first find Jesus. We're never gonna be the church that we're supposed to be apart from Jesus. We're never gonna be the church that we're supposed to be disconnected from Jesus. We are never going to do what we could do without Jesus. It's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, he says, and my word should abide in you. In him is everything everything we need to know about God, we can discover, we can experience, and we can enjoy in Jesus. It's the only time, as my friend Mike Bird says, it's the only time that the villain, or the, excuse me, the hero dies for the villain. It's the only time, it's the only story where the hero dies for the villain. My hope for you is that God would make these things come alive in you. You remember Jesus asked Peter and the disciples once, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John or one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And Peter makes this great declaration. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, through your brains, your power, and your resources. You figured it out. No, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you. This wasn't revealed to you by people, but my Father, by my Father who's in heaven. That's the one who reveals it all. I wanna pray for us. 
want to invite us to move towards a response to this. To say with joy, thank you God for what you've done in Jesus. Thank you for what you've given to Jesus and thank you that you gave all of Jesus to me, to us. We have at the front two different tables with the elements for the Lord's Supper. For those of you who uh, wanna do it with the bread and the bowls of juice, you just take a piece of bread and you dip it in the juice and you can take it. Those of you who would prefer a more sanitized version, we have some uh, individual packets that you can take. You peel off the top layer uh, for the cracker, you peel off the second layer for the juice. And I would remind you that this is for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Those of you who aren't yet followers of Jesus, I invite you to observe and maybe ask somebody, why do you do this? Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, the scriptures say that he took bread and he broke it. And he said, as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of me and you proclaim my death until I come. He took the bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In a like manner, he took the second cup, the cup of the new covenant. And he said, this is my blood, which is being poured out for the sins of many body broken and blood spilled so that you could be made right with Jesus. And when you take the Lord's Supper, what you're saying is, I've been made right with Jesus. I've been made right with God, excuse me, through the death of Jesus. That's what did it. It wasn't me, it was him. We have offering boxes up there. You can give as a part of your response. Part of a response to following the Lord is to say we wanna honor him with our money. The most accessible idol in our community is wealth. It's the one that's easiest for us to say matters most. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I don't care how much you give. I really genuinely don't care, but I can tell you that God does. He does, he cares. And I don't care whether or not you give here, but you should honor God with the resources with which he has given to you. You should submit your whole life to him and that includes your money. It doesn't have to be here. It doesn't have to be a certain amount. The command in scripture is that God loves a generous giver and that each person should give what they've decided in their own heart to give. You should give what God has laid on your heart to give. You should give it with absolute freedom, with absolute joy, and without a trace of guilt. You should give what God has laid on your heart to give. You can give in the boxes. You can give through the Church Center app. You can give online at our website. You can give somewhere else keeping it and obeying the commands of Jesus. Keeping it all and obeying the commands of Jesus are mutually exclusive. You can't do that. And then we pray. I'll be available to pray with you. I'll be in the back uh, through the first song during the response time to pray and talk and counsel with anybody that the Lord is dealing with. We sing together. These moments are when we say, what is God saying to me? What am I supposed to do about it? And we move because hope moves. So let me pray for us and then you respond as God leads you. God, we love you because you love us. We're here because you brought us. We're grateful for all that you've given us in Jesus. And we pray, just as Paul prayed, we pray that you would give us the gift of your spirit to make these things come alive inside of us, to turn the light on in our hearts that we would really believe it and that we would live as if it's really true. We love you and we pray this in your name, amen. So when you're ready to take the Lord's Supper, you can get up, come to the middle, go down the front to the tables and then enter back through. We'll try it that way and we'll see how it goes. And if alarms go off, just keep moving. If there's really a fire, we'll announce it pretty loudly.
Okay? All right. You respond as the Lord leads you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.